as uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, and I always love to read his quotes, seems like they always have some form of application to what we go through on a day-to-day basis. But he says, he who has a thousand friends has not a friend to spare, and he who has one enemy will meet him everywhere. Isn't that true? Haven't you found that to be true, that it just seems like uh, you go down the street or you go down the hallway or wherever you happen to be, you run into that, that one person that you just so don't want to see. Our enemies are unavoidable, and it's inevitable that you and I will have an enemy of one sort at any given time as we go throughout our journey in life. It's just a part of life. These enemies, they come in all shapes and sizes. They may be among our family members, our co-workers, our classmates, abusers, bullies, various systems that we're a part of, and maybe your boss. Maybe you're thinking today, my boss is my biggest enemy. Hopefully not, but I realize that could be the case. Enemies are something we all have, and we all deal with them in various ways. Some of those ways are healthy. Some of those ways are unhealthy. What I have found in life, um, and certainly throughout a study of history, is that we tend to deal with them in a very unhealthy way. I mean, we can just look at history and see that. We have different approaches personally, nationally, and even within our own families. And none of these ever really seem to work out so well. So what are we to do with our enemies, especially as followers of Jesus, especially in light of these words that Jesus gave to his disciples that that seem quite radical and they seem quite challenging to where we are in life, just as they were for those who gathered on that day. This is something Jesus brought up with the disciples. Again, he's still in the midst of this sermon. We've been in it for three weeks now. But Jesus is, is going through it to this crowd and He is speaking with them about all of these different things that, that we have heard in our Scripture readings. And as He is doing all of this, He looks out at them, fully realizing their struggle with their enemies. He certainly understood what was going on. Some of them may have, have been enemies with each other on that day. Even more, they, they at least all had one enemy in common, the Roman government. They were all dealing with different kinds of oppression and hardships as a result of the Roman government. They were oppressed. They were pushed down. They were marginalized. And so they all had this one common enemy, and no doubt in their minds, this kept coming up. Jesus himself was already collecting enemies. I mean, this really began at birth, didn't it? We can think about Herod, and we can think about others who came against him and opposed him. And Herod expressed his jealous and paranoid actions upon the firstborn of Israel. Jesus would continue to find himself surrounded by enemies. I mean, he had a lot of friends. He he would travel around and people loved to come hear him speak and to see him perform healings and all kinds of things, even to hear him teach. But every day he collected more and more enemies. So this topic for this segment of his sermon was nothing but relevant. And it is nothing but relevant for us here today as well. What are we to do with the people who are intent on doing us harm and making our lives miserable? Perhaps even trying to kill us? Well, our our record as Christians would show that we have messed this up many times about how to deal with our enemies. It is interesting to to trace uh, Christians' response to enemies throughout history. 
from the early church. And that's always a great place to look. How, how did this crowd of people who took in this message and began to follow Jesus and would continue to follow Him after Jesus was crucified and after He ascended into heaven, what would they do? What did they do with the enemies around them? I mean, we can look at people like Peter and John and others and then later Paul and get some feel and understanding of how they applied this message. But as we look throughout history, we also see, uh, continuing from the early church, we can look at pre-Constantine Christianity to post-Constantine Christianity, and and things radically changed at that point, to uh, Augustine's just war theory. Then there are the Crusades, and we really don't like to talk about the Crusades, do we? Those are a little bit embarrassing. The Inquisition, America's manifest destiny and subsequent warfare against the Native Americans. We could talk about domestic violence rates in Christian families and, uh, and how there's really not much of a difference between that kind of violence among Christians as opposed to those who would say they're non-Christians. One example is with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who is uh, the subject of a bestseller. Uh, of course, you know, there's, there's always a, a, a book out about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but there's, there's a new one out, and it just tells a little bit about his story. But if you recall anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor and a theologian and, and a, really an activist, you could say, uh, especially as he was living in the context of Nazi Germany. And so as he is there, he decides to stay there, to stay with his people. And he gets wrapped up, he gets, he gets caught up in everything that's going on. And uh, he has to weigh the balance here between, what am I going to do? Uh, should Hitler, should I stop Hitler, and should I, should I uh, go forward with this assassination attempt to end his life and hopefully end the evil and the violence that's going on, or should I do nothing? Should I pray and just be with, the, with my people and exist in suffering? And we know that he did attempt a suicide, he, I mean an assassination attempt upon Hitler, and it didn't work. And what took place was that uh, even more violence took place. The, the plan failed, and the result was the unleashing of even more violence spewing from Hitler, especially to him, as he would uh, not long after be executed for his attempt. Violence begat more violence. It's obvious that none of this works. So what is it that works? What, what are Christians to do, especially in the midst of a, a Nazi Germany kind of situation? Well, we find an answer to this, or at least we begin to find an answer to this as we look closely at what Jesus is really saying and doing in our text today. And I want to emphasize that part. Let's look closely. I don't have time this morning to really dig deeply enough in this. I'm just going to scrape the surface a little bit. This is a topic that uh, you you could stay with throughout the rest of your life, chewing on it, Uh, studying it, thinking about it from different angles, and looking how different people have dealt with it throughout history. But I just uh, continue here with this scraping of the surface, and I I hope it will generate within you a deeper desire to think for yourself. How would I react? How would I respond? What is it that Jesus is saying to me about my enemies? So we look more closely. What we find is that Jesus, just like with the other areas mentioned last week, you know, all those different topics that were there. Jesus has developed a whole new way of living out God's kingdom in this world. We prayed this morning, at least I hope you thought about those words you were praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth 
as it is in heaven. What is that word kingdom? What, what is this all about? Jesus is fleshing this out. He is giving every bit of application to this kingdom. And this is such a, 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 a profound and monumental sermon that Jesus is giving here. It is something that, that we need to pay attention to. It's a whole new way. And it's what I would like to refer to today as the third way. And uh, Walter Wink uh, has written a great book, uh, and I highly recommend it to you. It's called The Powers That Be. He is a Methodist pastor and, and uh, theologian, and uh, he has been recognized a lot for really not necessarily new thinking, but a, a way of um, putting some of this together in a way that uh, lots of people can understand. And, and so I'm going to be leaning on his understanding uh, of this particular text. And those that uh, are also included, that he includes from, uh, from other traditions and um, certainly other times in history. But this is such a, a powerful book. But he, he refers to this way as the third way. Jesus is giving a brand new way for living, especially dealing with enemies. Well, if we're going to understand what the third way is, let's look at, at way one and way two. Way one of dealing with enemies uh, is what is described here in Jesus' quote of the law. He states, you have heard it said. Again, we looked at that last week. Jesus keeps saying, okay, you've heard it said. You've heard other teachers provide this law, but I tell you. So he draws them in. But, but I tell you, and this is how I uh, interpret the law. In fact, I am fulfilling the law before your eyes. And he refers to the law about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was their way of dealing with one another when injury or death occurred. I mean, if, if somebody accidentally killed your cow, well, then you would go to their herd and you would kill one of their cows, probably one of equal size and age and production and all that, and so you would take out their cow. If someone killed your child, you would take the, the life of, of his or her child. It was just this tit-for-tat going back and forth. And this was misinterpreted and, and misconstrued in a lot of different ways. But it was tit for tat and provided approval for balanced retaliation against one's enemies. This was the standard and accepted way of dealing with your enemies. It was unheard of to consider compassion uh, or love for an enemy or someone who has done you wrong. Later, after Jesus' teaching that upturned this way of dealing with enemies, Augustine developed a way for Christians to deal with enemies that was an extension of tit for tat. So it's looking at it from a different perspective and, and including Jesus' understanding and teaching of it. The idea was that retaliation and violence to enemies is only acceptable if it's in self-defense, primarily in defense of my neighbor whom I am commanded to love. So if I see that someone is out uh, getting ready to kill my neighbor, then if I am going to follow the command of love, to love my neighbor, I better get over there and do whatever I can to prevent that from happening. And uh, I, I could use whatever form of violence to stop that uh, neighbor from being hurt. And so this is something that developed into what's referred to as the just war theory or the just war approach to, uh, to defense and loving a neighbor. So loving my neighbor means defending her or him when assaulted by an enemy. This thinking became known as just war and would be used against the Roman Empire and misused ever since for many an unjust war. And you hear about it every time uh, our nation uh, gets involved in uh, the consideration of waging war. This uh, Augustine's uh, ideas come back up. And they're discussed and they're debated. 
Well, that's way one. Way one would be getting involved in some kind of action, uh, perhaps even violence. Way two is the passive approach to enemies. This is the view we often mistakenly attribute to Jesus and what he meant by turn the other cheek. If I were to ask you what you thought about it, we'd get all different kinds of opinions in here today. It is the idea that Jesus taught that Christians should not resist those who oppose them, but to take their abuse or injustice as just a part and the cost of following Jesus. It's the, the floor mat mentality. Well, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to just take it. I'm going to lay down, and if they want to step all over me, that's just a part of the, the cost of, of following Jesus. Well, this indeed sounds noble, but as we will soon see, this is not. This is not what Jesus is teaching here. If anything, Jesus provides a great model for resistance. Creative resistance intended to humiliate and to shame one's enemy. This way, too, is what is sometimes referred to as passivism, and, may, uh, and many religious groups uh, today hold to this idea. And, um, and it's called different things, but in, in, in a general sense, it would be just pacifism. So that's way one and way two. What is way three, this third way of Jesus that Wink refers to? We find it here in the Gospel text and looking at these examples that Jesus gives. So let's hear them again. The first one that Jesus mentioned was the one I think that we most understand. And because we most uh, misunderstand it, it is the one that we, we uh, like uh, the least. I mean, we, we don't want anything to do with it. We don't want to participate in turning the other cheek. Uh, you know, it, it's this idea that uh, we would rather use our fists than our cheeks. Hear again what Jesus said. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. So just hearing this seems to indicate that Jesus wants us to offer ourselves up for another beating. Yes, uh, hit me again. I'm a Christian, just go ahead and, and I'll turn the other cheek and you can just hit me again. Again, we don't, we don't like this. It doesn't give us a, a very good uh, strategy for how to deal with our enemies. But the way the people in Jesus' time heard this is very different than how we hear it today. It had to do with the customs of the day and what it meant for someone to strike you. These people were used to being slapped around. I mean, they really were, to being beaten down. As Walter Wink puts it, by turning the cheek, now listen to this carefully, by turning the cheek, the servant makes it impossible for the master to use his backhand again. The way you would hit someone who was uh, underneath you in society would be that you would backhand them. You wouldn't waste a fist on them. You wouldn't hit them with an open hand. You would humiliate them with a, a slap across the face. The left cheek now offers a perfect target for a blow with the right fist. If I had time, I'd bring Jay Greenleaf up here and I would practice this so that you could, you could see it and get a better model. But only equals fought with fists, as we know from, from Jewish sources. And the last thing the Master wishes is to establish this underling's equality. This act of defiance renders the master incapable of asserting his dominance in this relationship. By turning the cheek, then the inferior is saying, I'm a human being, just like you are. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God, and I won't take it anymore. 
You can just imagine how this was received by the crowd of disciples that day. Can you just imagine how this empowered and encouraged them in their lowly status? Yes, this was a different way of relating to enemies altogether. And it certainly isn't a passive approach to an enemy's abuse or violent tactics. You can just see them there, probably elbowing each other, thinking, yeah, we're going to be able to get them. We've never heard any teacher give us this information before. We've never heard this interpretation. I like this Jesus. I want to listen to Him a little bit more. Well, the same kind of tactic is seen in Jesus' example of the cloak. I really like this one. Jesus said, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Get to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. In fact, it's quite humorous when you hear it within their cultural context. And you always have to go back to their context, not our context. It would be normal for a debtor to use his clothing as collateral on a loan if that's all that he had left. And usually, this is all they did have left, their outer coat. And so you would give it to them for a day, and this would be collateral. But the clothing was only to be the outer garment. Jesus told them not to stop there, but to inflict shame on the person taking them to court by stripping down to nothing. I mean, getting in their skivvies, as we might say, by offering not just their coat, but everything they had. This was a way to point out the injustice of beating down the poor who were in such a state because of unjust practices against them. This would be a way for them, the powerless, to get the upper hand through exposing the shame of their creditors. Now you can just imagine all of them thinking, okay, we can get naked? Jesus, are you, are you sure? Is this what you're saying? I mean, just strip down in the courtroom and just, you know, show everything? And this is what Jesus is teaching. Again, we tend to miss this with a, a real casual reading. And then there's the backpack strategy. It says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. It was not unusual for a Roman soldier to demand a Jew to carry his backpack for him, but for only one mile, according to Roman law. You couldn't just pull a guy aside and say, okay, you're going to have to hike with me to the next city. It could only be for one mile. So Jesus instructed his disciples to, uh, whenever this would happen, to go ahead and carry it another mile. This would make the soldier look barbaric and would get him in trouble. It would, it would bring humiliation upon him, get him in trouble with his superiors. Here again, you can see the brilliance of Jesus' tactics in taking action, direct action, against enemies rather than preaching passive submission. So the guy says, okay, well, we're at the end of, uh, of that mile. I'll take the backpack back. Thank you for your service. And probably push him down on the ground. And so the guy says, no, well, I realize we're at mile one, but let's go another mile. And the guy says, no, you can't do that. And you just see the guy taking off with that backpack, heading off to the second mile to bring this kind of humiliation upon him. Well, uh, again, such action, while direct, was with radical love. This is, this is what Jesus wanted for them. So you say, this is all great and maybe even fun, but how does this work for me with my enemies? My enemies might fire me or beat me senseless or just pull out a gun and shoot me. I might get fired for using such tactics against my unethical boss. How will it work when you go to your office tomorrow or you go to a school that's full of bullies or driving around town and dealing with hostile drivers? What does this mean for me? Well, it means, first of all, to love them. 
it must be kept in mind that Jesus is not advocating mischief and action just for the sake of winning against the enemy. No, what he is about here is love. It is all about love. This is the foundation for the kingdom of God that Jesus teaches about over and over. And that he lives out with his own life. Even as he journeyed to the cross and would be hung to death on the cross. You must remember Jesus' words here. To love your enemies just as you love your family and your friends. And you are to be so familiar with the love of God in your life that your thoughts and your actions and your responses to your enemy flow out of a deep well of God's love within you. This is where you draw such love for your enemies. It also means to make a commitment to nonviolence in your response to your enemies. This is an upfront commitment that you would make. In every nonviolent movement, uh, especially those that are happening today in, uh, in different places, uh, like we saw recently in Egypt, there is always the tendency to become violent when the enemy hits hard and inflicts evil on the nonviolent. So there must be a commitment, a pledge to staying nonviolent even when things get difficult and even deadly. Uh, remember that violence begets more violence. But love, Jesus' style, brings victory. Turn off then the, uh, the itchy and scratchy style video or, or the Saw 3 movie playing in your head for your enemy. You know, we tend to fantasize about dismembering our enemies. Or maybe that's just me. And envision what it will be like to kill your enemy with kindness. It means to have a bit of fun with them, with your creative resistance to their action. And I, I like this teaching of Jesus because it does mean we get to have fun with them. It's what Shane Claiborne refers to as holy mischief. I believe Jesus wants us to use our God-given imaginations to come up with innovative ways of preventing our enemies and their hatred from shining brighter than the abundant and powerful love of God. Before reacting or responding out of anger or self-defense, take some time to scheme and to plan out what will make Jesus smile and nod with His approval. Think about it for a while. Not in a mean way, but in a creative and fun kind of way. There's some great examples of this in Shane Claiborne's book, The Irresistible Revolution. Things that he does pretty much on a monthly basis as, as he is at work in the inner city of Philadelphia. Also, you'd find them in Gandhi's tactics against the British rule in India and with Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance in the civil rights movement right here in America. It was all about direct action and nonviolence, all taken from this Sermon on the Mount. I think about, as, as we think about uh, Black History Month, Rosa Parks, think about how creative she was just by sitting on the bus, not getting up, and think about all the good that came out of that nonviolent response. Well, there is, uh, th there's a lot that we could talk about here in terms of other tactics, but use your imagination. Well, finally, it means uh, to have redemption as your goal with them. Even with Jesus' tactics to humiliate and shame His enemies, His actions had a, uh, a redemptive goal and end. You can see this as he interacted with his enemies. Like when he put Malchus's chopped off ear back on. You remember Malchus? The guy who, uh, you know, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off his ear and it falls to the ground and Jesus takes this bloody chopped off ear, puts it up onto the side of Malchus's head and redeems it. 
He redeems it with love and great creativity. You see it in Jesus' in Jesus's life even while He gets hung on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was loving His enemies all the way until He took that last breath and said, It is finished. Our actions are to have the same redemptive goal in mind. We are not to destroy our enemies, but to love them into the kingdom of God. There's so much more for us to consider here. And I, I hope you'll follow some of the footnotes. I'll be uh, posting this up on the, uh, on the, the website uh, later today. And uh, as you look at that, you'll see some footnotes to follow and some things that I think will help you dig a little deeper. I, don't, uh, I do want to close with a quote from my favorite author, uh, Frederick Beekner, in his book, The Magnificent Defeat. I, I ran across it again this week, and I wanted to share it with you as a way to close. He says, The love for equals is a human thing. A friend or a friend of a friend or a brother for brother, it is, no, uh, it is to love what is loving and lovely. And the world smiles on that kind of love. It's an easy kind of love for us. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely, this is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate, it's a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love for the poor, for the rich, of the black man for the white man, the world is, all, is always bewildered by its saints. And then there's a love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Conquering the world with God's love is exactly what Jesus was all about that day and with every day of His life. And isn't this what we are to be about as well? To conquer our world with God's love? May you greet your enemies this week with this kind of love. Let's pray.